Habakkuk found himself in a position where he was really nervous. And now I know this is one of my pet stories to reference and talk about, and so if you're familiar with it, just hang on. But if not, Habakkuk was a prophet of God, and he was watching something disturbing happening. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the people who were not only enemies of God's people in the Old Testament, but were, from everything that you could see, the complete opposite of who God's people were and who they were supposed to be. Those people were coming on a destruction mission. And Habakkuk knew that these Babylonians were coming and that when they came, they were going to bring with them destruction. They were going to bring with them captivity. They were going to bring with them an end to what God's people knew as normal. And he knew that they couldn't stand against them. And from everything that he could see, God wasn't going to stand against them either. And so Habakkuk became incredibly enraged. And he starts coming at God with a boldness that we don't see in many other places in Scripture. Accusing God, in essence, of not being who God really claims to be. Telling him that he was allowing justice to go forth perverted and allowing these people who were so sinful and broken to have their way and do whatever they wanted without him intervening at all. And so Habakkuk just lays it all on the line because he's fearful and he's nervous about what's happening and his circumstances didn't match his knowledge and understanding of who God was. And God's answer to Habakkuk did not provide much comfort, at least at first. Because God comes to Habakkuk and he says, listen, if I told you everything that I was going to do, If I gave you the play-by-play of what my exact plan was going to be, it's so big and so large that you couldn't understand it or grasp it, even if I gave it to you on the most basic detail. And this answer didn't really satisfy Habakkuk, shockingly enough. And so he comes to God with a second charge against God, and then God says, you know what, just go tell the people what I want you to tell them. Go do your job. And he instructs Habakkuk on what what he would say. And Habakkuk gets a glimpse into God's big plan. And all of a sudden, everything changes. And I want you to hear the last words of the book of Habakkuk. As Habakkuk takes that glimpse of God's foresight and knowledge and plan and starts to recognize exactly how good God really is. In Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19, these are the last words that we see Habakkuk speak in his book. It says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And so there we see a man whose circumstances didn't change. Habakkuk was still going to incur, just like the rest of God's people, the full brunt of the Babylonian onslaught, and they were about to go into a period of very long exile and captivity. And so Habakkuk's circumstances didn't change, but his perspective did. 
because he recognized even when life feels barren and empty, God is still the source of our strength and our comfort because none of this takes him by surprise. None of this scares God. None of this knocks God off balance. And so during the times when I don't understand, I need to trust that God does. And so I am going to set my feet firmly in the plan of the one who knows all things. Life can feel chaotic. Maybe that's how life feels for you right now. Maybe not. But even if it's not now, you have experienced times when life feels like it's spiraling out of your control. But not only can it feel like life spirals out of our control, but it's easy to start to think and believe that life is spiraling beyond God's control. But just like with Habakkuk, there are times that God reminds us, sometimes gently, sometimes not so gently, of who he is. That he's not only the God of the past and the present, but he's the God of the future as well. And he's not only the God who holds the stars in their place, but he also is the God who holds your life in his hands. And that he knows these seasons and these ups and downs long before we ever could. And so today, we're going to look at that side of God recognizing the God who has a big plan. And I forgot to change that on the the title screen up there. We're talking about today the God with a big plan. And we're going to see the echoes of Genesis throughout all of Scripture and ultimately throughout all of eternity. As we see God make a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that he had decided on before the foundations of the world that he fulfilled in what the New Testament calls the fullness of time, and that he'll bring to its fruition once and for all, one day, and allow us all to be a part of that. And so our main text today is going to be Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And this comes out of the midst of what we talked about last week, and this is God bringing down his judgment against the the tempter in Eden, against the serpent. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. May God add his blessing and favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we do thank you and praise you for your word, just like we do every week. But God, I also want to thank you that your word never returns void, that your promises are never empty, that there is nothing in this world and nothing in this universe that's beyond your control, that your wisdom is greater than we could ever fathom or imagine. But God, you know that that is so easy for us to forget, especially when our circumstances seem dire. So, Father, as we look not simply at Genesis, but as we see your entire plan throughout Scripture, God, I just want to ask and pray that you help us to find comfort and confidence as we recognize that you are a God who is not short-sighted or impulsive, but you are a God with a big plan and that your plans always come to fruition. 
So, Father God, we just ask that you speak to us through your word, teach us by your Holy Spirit, and help us to leave here today knowing you more and having more confidence in you than we did before we came in. Not because you earned it more today, but because you help us realize more of who you are. And so, Father, we ask and pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So if you haven't been here in the past few weeks, as we've looked through Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see God sculpt out a garden. And this garden was perfect. This was a habitat designed for human existence and human thriving. It had everything that it could possibly need. Rivers to quench thirst. Trees of various kinds that were good for food and pleasing. Everything that these people that God placed in the garden needed was all there. And it was glorious and wonderful and perfect. And then tragedy strikes. We saw last week in Genesis chapter 3. When humanity stepped outside the boundaries that God had laid for them. Stepped outside of their role and their purpose inside of God's good creation. And tried to attain something more. And yes, we did see last week that God was gracious. That even though he could have and should have just wiped them out and started all over, God didn't do that. But in fact, we see the first sacrifice offered was offered, as we looked at last week, by God for man as he wraps these people up in their clothing to cover their shame and to cover their guilt. And then escorts them out of Eden instead of allowing them to drop dead on the spot. And so, yes, God was gracious in what he had done, but everything had changed now. And it causes us to ask questions like, why would God create a world so fragile? Or why would a just God allow this to happen? Or why wouldn't he at least have acted a little more surprised when he comes across these two people who have just seemingly bankrupted the entire thing? But God wasn't surprised at all. And that should teach us something not only about his character, but also about his design and his plan for this world. Because he knew what was coming. Here we see the story of a God who designed, like a passionate architect, this universe and this world. Created it exactly to his specifications. Created it good. And declared it very good as we see that fullness of Genesis chapter 1. And he did all of that knowing that it wouldn't be good for long. Knowing that we were going to mess it up. You see, we're taught in scripture over and over again. That not only does God know all things, but he knows us. Both as a whole, he knows humanity, but he also knows us individually. And we're taught in Scripture that He knows us deeply. Hebrews says the Word of God has the power to divide us down to the place where joint, where bone meets marrow. To the place where soul meets spirit. He knows us down to the deepest and most intimate recesses of who we are. And yet, He still loved us. He still chose to create us. And not only that, 
But before that first sin entered the world, before sin and the powers of hell came into God's good creation, he knew long before the foundations of the universe how he was going to save us. He had a plan to bring us home before anyone drew a breath. A few weeks ago, we looked at the fact that creation was an act of grace. Because God, being perfect and holy and awesome as he is, doesn't lack anything and doesn't need anything, including us. God didn't stand to gain anything special by creating our world and filling it with us so that we could worship him and honor him. He didn't need us, but he wanted us, and that was an act of grace. But not only is creation an act of grace because God didn't need us, It was an act of grace because he knew that we would live like we don't need him. He knew sin as well as he knew us. Not only did he know sin in a big meta sense, but he knew sin on an individual level. He knew each and every sin that you and I would commit over the course of our entirety of our lives. And yet he still wanted to create us anyway. And so it can feel very easy especially in times of trials and times of circumstances that are beyond our control, and then some of those that we can control, in times where we feel especially rebellious and sinful, when we're living in a way that is clearly contrary to how God has designed us to live, it's easy to feel unwanted or to feel too far gone. To say there's no way that God could possibly love me or that God could possibly save me. Because here are all the things that I've done. Here are all the things that I'm doing right now. God knows all of those things. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the things you've done and the things that you haven't done. And yet still, before the foundations of the world decided that he wanted you to be a part of his good creation. And so as we start to see in Genesis 3... These hints that God has a bigger plan. This promise that God makes to the serpent. We start to recognize exactly how much God loves us and cares for us. And exactly how in control of this universe God really is. When we look at the garden story, we see not only a perfect garden fit for human thriving, But we also see a perfect relationship, not simply between the man and his wife, although that is a perfect relationship there because they have no sin, they have no shame, they have no reason to hide from each other at all. But we also see a perfect relationship between humanity and God, walking together in the garden, not having to be afraid or ever trying to hide or lower themselves, but being able, as Genesis 2 says, to be naked and unafraid. To be completely unashamed before a just and holy God. And then it all seems lost. It all seems to fall apart as their relationship changes and they hide away from God, trying to cover up their shame, not wanting to even step into the presence of God because they were so overwhelmed by the sin in their lives. And I find it hard to imagine how Genesis 3 must feel. As we look at these verses where God lays down the curse of the fall. And it makes me go back in time. Because I 
not only got in trouble a lot when I was younger, but I was really bad at getting in trouble. You know what I mean? Like some people are just good at getting in trouble. When they get in trouble, they're like, yeah, you're right. That's what I did. And I graciously accept your punishment and all that comes with it. And we'll try again later. That wasn't really my style. And so what would usually happen is I would get in trouble and then I would decide that I was going to dig my heels in, right? And I was going to stand my ground, whether that was lying or arguing or trying to justify or whatever it was that I was going to do. And I would dig in and I would fight for every square inch and it just never went well. And it would keep going and going and I would keep elevating and elevating until I remember several instances where we would be so deep. I would be causing my parents so much strife and frustration that I would be dizzy, literally dizzy, from how far I had taken this one simple thing. That I could have just said, you're right, I shouldn't have done that. Punishment accepted, discipline received, aye, aye, we'll move on from here. And now I find myself in a place where everything that I love is being turned upside down because I just can't shut up and take what I need. And I can remember the feeling of looking at the ground at a certain point and it actually feeling like it was spinning. And that has to be what's happening here in Genesis chapter 3, just on a much more cosmic level, as these people receive this punishment from God. What we see happening here is a garden that once was filled with rivers of life, now just flowing with rivers of tears. Because everything they had is lost. Everything that they knew was forever changed. But I wonder if they caught it. This little glimpse of hope that seems to be hidden in plain sight. As we get to Genesis 3.15. As God is laying out the consequences of sin to each party involved. Verse 15, he looks to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Now we're talking about the future. He says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, as we look through this passage, we see that the source of sin's grand entrance into God's story, the tempter, the initiator of this sin, is given not only an immediate consequence because of the actions that were taken, but he's given a cosmological, eternal consequence. God's saying, one day... Someone is coming that's going to take all of this brokenness and all this misery that you've caused, and he's going to bring it to rights. He's going to put everything back together. And so not only do we see the first sacrifices in Scripture in Genesis 2 and 3, right here we see the first prophecy. God calling his shot. And you may think that you've caused this unending chaos. You may think that you've thrown my good creation into disorder, but you don't know me. You don't know what I'm doing here. But I've got a big, big plan. And we see echoes of that plan all throughout Scripture. When Jesus, this offspring of woman that God is talking about, When he stands before some religious leaders, they start talking to him about their father, Abraham, trying to discredit Jesus. And he says, no, 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 don't talk about Abraham. You don't want to talk about Abraham with me because Abraham saw my day coming and he rejoiced. Abraham knew that this was the end result. Abraham knew that something better was coming and he knew that it was going to be me. 
all throughout the Old Testament, we see hints and allusions towards a greater sacrifice coming, a greater salvation coming. The tabernacle and the temple and the sacrifices themselves are all imperfect pictures of what Jesus was going to one day do perfectly. All of the prophets, as they're warning the people of Israel about their sin, about the brokenness that's going to come from that, they look to the future and they say, this is what we're dealing with now. Your sin is what we're going to deal with now, and there's going to be consequences for those sins. But one day, someone is coming who's going to put all of these things back together. And he's going to be the son of David, and the government is going to rest on his shoulders. And by his stripes, we are going to be healed. And over and over and over again, each prophet declares the coming of God's Messiah, of God's Savior, of the one born of woman who will bring everything to rights. And then even looking in hindsight, the New Testament writers recognize that it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son, born of a woman to crush the head of the serpent and undo the effects of sin in our world. You see, God knew this moment long before the first seed took root. Long before sin wrapped its chains of bondage around the hearts of humanity. And God had a plan and he had a solution. And that solution was going to come into the world in the form of an offspring. In the form of a child who would grow up to undo everything that Eden saw falling apart. And so he looks at the serpent and he says, it won't be today. And it's not going to be tomorrow. But one day, I am going to bring someone into this world who is going to put all of this back together and crush the weight of the sin that you've let loose in this world. But as we said, everything changed. The relationship changed. The people were no longer suitable for this perfect environment. And so God lovingly and yet justly escorts them out of the garden. And so the people of God leave the garden. And that river that flows out of Eden follow them. And when we look at especially the Old Testament, we see a theme of water. As God delivers his people from generation to generation, we see these rivers and these waters play a huge and important role. Before we get out of the study on Genesis 1 through 11, we'll talk about the first big instance of that as we see the flood story. Where God delivers his people out of the waters. As waters cover the earth and the flood resides, then God's people remain. And he brings not only justice through water, not only judgment through water, but deliverance through water. We see as God's people are fleeing captivity in the book of Exodus, as they're running away from Egypt, God takes the Red Sea and he spreads it open. And the people of God come through the sea and on the other side they find freedom. As the people of God are going towards the promised land in the book of Joshua, we see God take the Jordan River and in the same way stretches it open so the people walk across on dry land and they find their promise on the other side of the waters. 
We see the prophet Jonah thrown into the sea and again given the opportunity to come back and do what God had called him to do as he's delivered up out of the waters. Over and over and over again through the Old Testament, we see these waters running with the promise of redemption everywhere that God leads his people. And it takes us all the way up to a time when Jesus meets a man named John the Baptist. And he goes into the waters of baptism and he comes out. And on the other side, he begins his mission of bringing redemption into the world once and for all. And so as the waters of Eden from the tree of life flow all the way through the story of the Old Testament, we see them flow from that tree of life to another kind of tree and another kind of river as the offspring of woman. As the Son of God suffers at the hands of his own creation. And as we'll see and recognize in just about a month now, we'll remember the cross as Jesus is taken and his arms are spread open. The same hands that dug humanity out of the dirt. The same God who created all of this world and all of this universe is taken and stretched out like a common criminal and nailed not to a tree of life, but to a tree of death. And those waters in Eden now turn to rivers of blood and water flowing from the Son of God as the sin of this world consumes him on our behalf. But this moment, the crucifixion of Jesus, shouts the truth of Eden. You see, just like that serpent thought that he had won as he brings sin into God's good creation, now there are religious leaders gathered around and snickering in the dark, thinking that they had ended this revolution that Jesus came to start. Thinking they had taken this man who had been a problem for years now, and they'd finally got him out of the picture. But little did they know, as they were snickering in the dark, the Son of Man was crushing the head of of the serpent. And we see that story told from an outward level in the Gospels. We see the events taking place in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as we see the passion of Christ on display. But the book of Revelation tells that story in a different way, in a spiritual way, in a cosmic way. In Revelation chapter 12, we're told about a dragon. And this dragon comes into the world and starts causing chaos. It says that this dragon, with all its fierceness, seven heads and ten horns on its head were seven diadems. It says that his tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stands over a woman who is about to give birth. And so we see this dragon causing chaos in God's word. And it says that the woman gives birth to a male child as to rule over all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had been a place where she had been prepared by God, which she's nursed for a very long time. And then we're told about a war between the forces of God and this dragon. And there's a whole lot of stuff caught up in the midst as this dragon causes chaos after chaos after chaos. And then in Revelation 12, verses 13 through 17, 
we see the showdown that we've been waiting an eternity to find. It says, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that they might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she's been nourished for that time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth. Sound familiar? After the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman and opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And so here we see this picture of this great dragon making war against the offspring of this woman, trying to devour the work that God was doing, and he couldn't be victorious. And so he stood and he waited and he just tried to bring about as much destruction and chaos that he possibly could. But what Jesus did on that cross was bring an end to the power that the dragon had, bring an end to the chaos that the serpent unleashed in Genesis chapter 3. And he gave victory. Not simply on the cross as Jesus breathed his last. But three days later as Jesus conquered death and the grave bringing life into the world. And in his victory Jesus brought about victory over not simply death but sin as well. And we see Jesus bring in new water. He calls himself a living fountain. And he leaves us with a baptism that washes over death and sin. Not simply covering those things like we see in Genesis, but washing them away once and for all. And so again, God is bringing deliverance through water. And as we go into the waters of baptism, we get to feel physically what happens to us spiritually as God takes the brokenness of sin and shame and washes it away once and for all through the victory of his son. And he calls us into that river. He calls us to participate in the promise of Genesis chapter 3. He calls us to participate in the victory that Jesus won for us on that tree that brought him death but gave us life. On that river that drained him of his life but does so, as we talk about in communion, that blood that was shed for us to cover over our sins and to wash those away. And he calls us into that river and he allows us to cling on to a hope of a new kind of river, but a very familiar tree. Again, go into the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 22, John gives us a window into our eternal promise. Into the hope that we have in Christ. Not simply that our sins will be forgiven and washed over, but that he has a big plan and we're a part of that that will last for all of eternity. And John gives us a little glimpse into what that looks like. He says, then an angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing this time from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street and of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, 
with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And listen to what he says is the result of this tree and this river. He says, no longer will there be anything accursed. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever. You see, John takes us back to those images. But this time, these rivers that were flowing in Genesis chapter 2 aren't flowing simply from a garden, but they're flowing from the throne of God. That God himself is giving life unimaginable. And there we see again that tree of life that the people were not allowed to touch because of their sin. Now the people of God are able to take from it freely. And it says the leaves of those trees are given for the healing of the nations. For all of the brokenness, all of the sin, all the shame, all the things that we still cling on to so tightly. John says that our hope in Christ is that one day we'll get to release those things and take the fruit of that tree and we'll never be the same. There will no longer be anything accursed in us at all. No longer will there be any sin or shame or any stain of that sin or shame. No longer any temptation or brokenness, but all of those things will be taken away. All of the consequences of sin, death and pain and difficulty. Remember, we've talked about how one day those things are going to be restored because we have a God who works and he calls us to work. And one day the pain of work will be taken away. One day the pain of relationship will be taken away and we'll be able to stand in the presence of God and see him face to face the way that we were meant to see him. The way that it was designed to be, that perfect relationship, being unashamed and guiltless in the presence of God for all of eternity. And what we find here is that even though John uses the language of Eden, is that we're not looking forward to a return to Eden, but a better Eden, a place with living water and total healing where every sin and scar and stain will be wiped away and all that will be left is the people of God the way that we should be, the way that we were designed to live, the way that we were made to be in perfect fellowship with one another and most importantly in perfect holy fellowship with God. And so as we look at Genesis chapter 3, we find that this story reveals to us a God with a big plan. And while Eden was never our hope or our home, this is. What we see in Revelation 22 is the hope of anyone who puts their faith in Christ and eternity perfected in the presence of God, living the way that we were designed to live, and that it's there for anyone who trusts in Christ. And that's something that we're given freely. 
Like we talked about last week, salvation has always been by grace alone. It's always been a gift of God. And even still, he calls us to those waters saying, listen, I know that you're covered with sin and shame. I know that you don't feel good enough. I know that you feel weak and broken. But he says, come to me, as Jesus tells us, because our burden is heavy, but his is light. And he allows us to trade that burden of sin and shame and guilt. And he gives us his righteousness in its place. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, that story can be your story as well. And so if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, or if you've never gone into those waters for baptism, then please don't leave here today without talking with me about what it means to be made new through Christ. And if you're here, and you've trusted in Christ, and you've been baptized, don't forget the meaning of that water. Don't forget that God has brought you out of that water into new life and into a new hope, and cling on to that hope every minute of every day of your life. Cling on to the river and the tree of life that's given as a gift through a fountain of blood and an old rugged cross. We need to learn to trust the God who has a big plan, to recognize that no matter what seasons come in our life, be they good or bad, that he is holding them in the palm of his hand and he has something bigger, something unimaginable, something so profound that all John knew how to do was just go back to what he believed to be the most perfect moment in the history of the universe. And so he describes Eden. He says, it's like this, but it's better. And we can't fathom it or imagine it, but it's a promise that God has given us. And so we need to trust in him and his plan, and use our lives in every season and circumstance as an opportunity to honor and glorify and magnify the God with a big plan until that day comes when we experience the joy and the fullness of seeing our faith made sight, seeing our hope made reality seeing the plan of God in its fullness so that we can look back on everything that we've been through and everything that we've experienced and said, oh, that's why, and recognizing how good it is. And so let's be people like Habakkuk, willing to say no matter what comes, no matter how barren life feels, no matter how lost I feel at any given point in time in my life, I know that God is my strength because I know that God has a big plan. I know that I can trust in the God who holds the stars to hold my life and that I can follow him with passion and hope knowing that one day I'll get to experience the truth and the beauty of Revelation 21 and 22 as Jesus makes everything right and everything new.